This podcast was proudly produced by NZ Audio Editors. For all your editing services, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.nzaudioeditors.com. Ryan J. Melson and Greg Mole from One Plan for Retirement would like to welcome you to the NZ Guide to Financial Freedom. In this podcast, we'll break down the psychological tools and financial framework you need to live the life you want to ensure you don't run out of money before you run out of life. So this, this uh, week's episode is going to be intergenerational wealth. And the idea is you've got these kids, um, they've come into money and it's going to have a huge impact on sort of the way they view life and it's quite hard to still instill good values when they've got all this money and they didn't earn it. They didn't. Do they still have the same perception in the value of the dollar? Um, what's your saying that um, granddad makes it and grandson loses it? So? There's an old saying that yeah, granddad makes the money, um, the son uh, maintains it mm. and the grandson loses it. It, yeah. it sort of means that it's a bit sexist. It could be grandma. Could yeah, it, it could days? be, yeah. yeah. I think it needs to change. But what it really says is that it's telling you that if you don't actually earn and create the wealth, you generally don't appreciate it. And uh, the difference between a hand up and a hand out expresses that. The hand up is where you help someone to further themselves. You know, it could be an education, it could be buying their first home, it could be buying a car. You know, you give them the deposit, you give them a, a, a bit of a kickstart as opposed to a handout, which is where you buy the whole thing. Mm. You know, a good example, I think, is parents who buy their parents, uh, buy their children a home. My observation of that is that it's not a good thing to do because the kids don't really appreciate um, what it takes to get that home. And, of course, in this day and age, what's happening is that those sort of children expect to live in a home very similar to the one their parents are living in. Mm. And certainly that wasn't the experience of my generation. You know, when my generation left home, uh, saved the deposit to buy their first home, it, it probably wasn't as valuable as the outhouse of their parents' home. No. You know, it was a little bit of a shitbox sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, it was our shitbox, so you're very proud of it, but proud it's what box. you could afford. Uh, and if I look back to the home that I bought um, in the 70s, the late 70s, and uh, which I was very proud of and worked on, tried to improve, I wouldn't want to live there now. No, uh, it's not in the neighbourhood that I really would want to live in. It was a long way from the interest that I had, so it's it's a relative thing. But that first home wasn't my last home. No, so it tends to be a stepping stone. There is, as I said, for many people, uh, their expectation. Many young people is that in buying the home that is similar to the one their parents have means it has to have you know, landscaping, it has to have en suites, it has to have you know, an inside toilet. 
Mm. I thought we were very lucky in the place I bought. The toilet was almost inside. Almost. Almost. Yeah. Monumental. I think it's important as well to share anecdotal stories that you've probably seen. Um, you've probably come across wealthy people in your time and they've got kids and then mm. sort of – do you see common themes that happen to kids that are born into money? Well, the, I suppose the common theme really is what you don't do and you don't appreciate. Mm. It, it comes – it's easy come, easy go. The same is true of lotto winners. You know, people who make a big winning, mm. they often say within five years they're worse off than they were before they made the win. <laughs> because, you know, suddenly because they've come into all this money, it's changed their expectations. It's changed their view of their place in the world, if you like. Uh, they'll move from a suburb they're in at the moment to a suburb they think they'd like to live in, mm. uh, where they're not, it's a square peg in a round hole type arrangement. Uh, they distance themselves from their job. So remember, your most valuable asset is your ability to earn an income. Yeah. So you win this million dollars or whatever, and you think, oh, I don't need to work anymore. Mm. Well, it's amazing how you can quickly go through money by the time you, you know, help or buy the things that you want to do, you know, Several racehorses, cars, boats, um, a beach place, all things that cost you money, don't make you money. Mm. Um, you probably get rid of the mortgage, a sensible thing to do. You might even get rid of the kids' mortgages, which is a lovely thing to do. But you can quickly drop that amount of money that you have so you don't have enough money working for you to support your new elevated lifestyle. Do you, do you have any structural things that you use, maybe trust for kids that aren't quite old enough and you're worried in the interim that there's someone overseeing like a testamentary trust? Or? Well, I think trusts are a vehicle to sort of um, create a passage, but then you create a problem there because then, and this is not a new thing, um, where you have children who basically live off the estate this is something that happened quite a lot in the 19th century. A lot of wealthy families, mm. uh, the Trust children, grandchildren, basically never worked, oh, yeah. just lived off a, an allowance, an income that came from the, the state. But the danger of that, of course, is twofold. One is that unless that income is inflation adjusted, your standard living will go down over time. Yeah, uh, It goes back to that rule of 72 if you think of the number 72 divided by what you believe the rate of inflation might be, say 3%, 72 divided by 3 is 24. That means every 24 years the cost of living doubles. Yeah. So you've got enough at the moment, but in 24 years' time, you can only do half the things that you used to do 24 years before. So a standard income can be a trap. Yeah. The other thing, too, is it comes down to you don't get that sense of accomplishment that you would have got if you had created the wealth. Mm. And I don't think people need to run around trying to be rich. You know, our mantra really is it's much more important not to be poor. Yeah. So it's about setting the uh, level of um, comfort. But everyone's a little bit different, you know. Some people would say, I'd be quite happy with a, a a little runabout so I can go fishing. Other people want some sort of... Uh, yacht, super yacht. Super yacht or a palace. I, I was lucky enough to go out a couple of times to the Americas, uh, on the America's Cup 
regatta to go out on someone else's boat because I think the best thing of about owning a boat is having friends who own a boat. Yeah, yeah, smart. Um, the uh, because boats are very expensive things to do. They're little holes in the ocean you keep pouring money into, but it's intriguing to see how much money is tied up in the in boats, yachts, launches. They just sit around the marina all the time. And maybe there's a, a feel-good factor, but it doesn't seem to be, to me, a good use of money. It's a depreciating asset. And But some people are happy with a small boat. Other people wouldn't be happy unless they had a much bigger boat. Everyone sets their own expectations. So there's no right or wrong. That, but the only thing that's important is, can you maintain that lifestyle? Can you maintain that asset? And the people who are generally work to buy that boat, irrespective of how big it is, have you know gone on a step-by-step process to do that and have funded not only the acquisition but the ongoing costs. If you have just given a boat like that and you go, that's great, but where's the money going to come from to maintain it? Mm. You know, There's a few steps missing that you haven't gone through that's going to be your undoing. So it's really from intergenerational wealth, you're talking about um, sustaining the purchasing power and thinking how it can fund your future children's yeah. lifestyle. For example, you know, if you decide to buy a house for your children, I think it's a very generous thing to do. But the one thing about houses is they cost you money as well as increasing in value, hopefully. Um, there's ongoing maintenance, there's the rates, there's insurance. There's improvements that need to be made over time to add yeah. value. So where's that money going to come from? So if you've bought and given your children an average house in Auckland, which is going to cost you how much? A an lot. average a house. In, look, a suburb like Mount Albert or Mount Roskill, you're closer to $2 million. They're not necessarily affluent areas. They were middle-class areas, yeah. and some of them sort of lower-middle-class areas. And it's going to cost you in excess of $1.5 probably more like $2 million to buy there, which means that you've suddenly got a, a very valuable asset that will need maintenance if it's a second home, second you know, home, an established home, which it will be. There'll be a wooden home, so it needs to be painted. You've got deterioration over time. You've got re-roofing, you've got landscaping, yeah. you've got all the stuff that goes on with that house. Where's that money going to come from unless you've got a substantial income or two incomes? Really hard for young people to buy a house on one income now. Mm. They need two. Why? Well, not only is it the price of housing going up, but it's about people's expectations of what they want as their first home or any home for that matter. You, do you think about that, um, obviously, to go on the same theme but a different tack. Do you think? Do you worry about with your kids? I mean, you've got a young family and you're successful in your own right. Well, I do, but it's interesting that my oldest uh, child, my son, uh, basically has been able to fund, along with his wife, the purchase of his own property. And he didn't need much of a hand up at all. Um, I really admire him. They've cut their cloth to suit. Uh, they were able to acquire a half site. They were able to build an appropriate property on that half site. They're both working with a couple of young kids. Um, they 
maintain a lifestyle that's affordable. They don't do silly or extravagant things. So, you know, I look at my son and I'm very proud of what he and his wife have done. I would always be happy to give them a hand up if they needed it as opposed to a hand out. But, you know, my son and his wife have that sense of accomplishment of what they have achieved is down to them, not to someone else's generosity. Mm. Um, in the same situation, um, I've got a, a, another child who I would like to provide a hand up to, but as she is not able to establish a reliable income, I'd be doing her a disservice. People have said you should go and buy your daughter a house, and I don't think it's the right thing to do, but I'm, you know, so I decided to do that. Uh, she would be immediately in trouble because where would the money come from to pay the rates, insurance, maintenance, and all the other outgoings, and a house that meets her expectations? So she would not be happy living in the sort of house that I bought um, many years yeah. ago as my first home because her expectations are up there. Yeah. Um, house is too nice. I understand nice, that. I understand that. But, you know, her situation is a little bit different. Until she can actually establish a reliable, dependable, reasonably substantial income, it's going to be very difficult for her to buy into a house. An apartment would be a better arrangement because apartments generally are cheaper to buy and cheaper to maintain, except, of course, you have to deal with the body corporate costs. So the building we're in at the moment, if you have a rental property, a, a, a flat in the build, that building, not that big, they're generally two-bedroom sort of apartments, it's going to cost you five to $800 a month in body corporate costs. And then you've got to pay your rates and your insurance and all your utilities, water, power. So it's not an inexpensive option to even own a, an apartment or a flat. Yeah. So that's the situation. With my younger children, well, they're pretty young. They're only 13 and 16 coming up. So, uh, you know, they're both reasonable savers. I've been helping them a little bit by putting money each month into a KiwiSave fund for them. Uh, that will help them for a deposit at some point in time. But it really comes down to them. Uh, if they haven't shown an attitude of saving to increase that deposit, it seems a bit foolish for me to then provide a lot of money to get them into a first home unless they've got a reasonable income mm. that they can maintain that. Do you keep it in your name or is there tax benefits putting in their name? Or? Oh, no, I think there's no tax benefits these days in respect of that type of arrangement. Um, you know, you know the, the days of using negative gearing to buy a home and offsetting the losses against your other income are gone mm. thanks to the current government. So that's just changed the nature of property ownership. My generation have been very lucky that we've been able to use negative gearing to buy into an, uh, a, an asset that's increased in capital value, an appreciating asset, and being able to ross, write some of those losses off against our other income. You can't do that now. 
Yeah, tons of change. I was meaning more the prescribed investor rate. If their income's what zero, zero percent tax on their um KiwiSaver. Well, no, it's not, is it? It's ten and a half, isn't it? Well, the lowest. Well, yeah, there is a zero percent option, but I think that's for charities. No, no it's only for trusts. Yeah, trusts. Yeah, no, not for young people. Young people, basically, if you don't have an income, uh, the prime rate for you is ten and a half percent. But so it's not about tax, to, you know, you know, deductibility or tax effectiveness. It's really about just doing the numbers and saying, look, if I've got an income of this, if I've got an income of $60,000 a year um, and then I have to pay tax on it, so that's going to be, you know, taking me down to anywhere between forty-five to 48000 um, take away my living costs, um, how much can I afford to fund the housing costs? And it's a tricky one. And, and it takes some time to build up a deposit. It's getting really hard now because they keep raising those deposit ratios. You know, if they say you have to have a deposit of, you know, 20% in Auckland for a million-dollar property, which won't buy you a great deal in Auckland, that's $200,000. That, that's a mountain. Mm. It's not a hill. Yeah. It's a mountain. And I really worry about how young people are going to be able to get into that. They're not going to do it on their own. They're probably going to have to combine together and yeah. and share, and that creates other dynamics. Um, what we really need is affordable housing as a first house for people to get in. Not their final house, but their first house. And it may be apartments rather than, you know, quarter-acre-type sections, because it seems to me, looking at the quarter-acre sections in the suburbs that would have been first home-buyer-type suburbs are just really unaffordable, yeah. out of the reach of, of just the normal younger person in their 20s or 30s who's just starting up, because the, your income's not anywhere near its premium, that, you know, at it, it, its... Um, you know, it, it, what it could be in the future, you, you're still starting off. Do you, do you have different options, you know, townhouse versus apartments, building versus not building? What are the pros and cons? Well, I think it comes down to a, what you can afford. Um, building is a good option, but you're going to have to be looking at land a long way out of town, and there's nothing wrong with that either as your first home. But some of those sections very expensive as well so mm. you know if they're looking for you know three to four to five hundred thousand for a section um you're not going to be ending up with a house uh that's you know a property that's less than eight hundred thousand dollars yeah okay probably going to be more like nine to a million so that's right, suddenly right. you know getting really up there i mean just not affordable for the average person maybe again you know the concept of affordable housing uh, where the government of the day assists people to get in there over time. So it's kind of like social housing. Uh, so you can basically build you up some equity in the property as, you, as you're renting and paying it off. It, it's going to be very, very difficult for younger people to get into their first home unless they've got parents or family members who are prepared to give them that hand up. Yeah. And I think that's kind of unfortunate in this country. I mean, it's happened before in other areas. I remember when I 
uh, was going through university, I did accounting. There were jobs for accountants in the in the seventies, but my friends who were doing law, there were no jobs for lawyers unless you had a family connection. Yeah. So it's not what you know; it's who you know. Mm. And property's starting to be like that at the moment. It's not, you know, basically what you're earning. It's who's going to support you to get over that hump. Because you could have a good income, but it's going to take you a long time to build up a deposit. And as you well know, rents aren't cheap. Definitely you know, to, not cheap. To rent in Auckland, for example, pretty hard to to get a rental arrangement, even on a shared basis, for less than $300 a week, I would have thought. Yeah, well, if you include expenses, yeah. that You can, but you have to you have to sacrifice the location and also have more people in it. Or you could have like a, a, a little apartment with um, just a shower and bed all in one place mm. so and a microwave. Probably a popular bloke like you would have no problem, but who'd want to live with me? Oh, mate, yeah. So, you got to stay yeah, in your house. So then I've got to... Yeah, you know, rent a whole property. So that's what, four hundred to six hundred dollars a week. Yeah, or yourself. Yeah, we actually had um a question, uh, where someone was asking about the invalids' benefit now living off two hundred ninety eight dollars a week, and their rent was three sixty. Well, you can't do that. But what they can do is get a, a, a rental, um, an accommodation allowance they for can, the three sixty. But they got inheritance of fifty thousand, which. Um, meant they didn't qualify for the accommodation temporarily until they ran out, the, which kind of seems a bit odd, doesn't it? I mean, at, at the end of the day, they then have to put themselves into you know an impoverished position to get yeah. get the payment. But what's really sad is that you've got people coming up to retirement and they can't afford to fund their rental arrangements, no. or certainly to buy a home. And that comes down to what I said before. In this country, there's a, a dearth, a, a real um, you know, lack of social housing. And it comes down to a number of factors. I think. Part of it's about expectations. It's about a kind of decline in the welfare state, in a way. Mm-hmm. Both my grandmothers, um, my grandparents, didn't own their own home. They bought up families uh, in rental accommodation, but it was effectively um, you know, controlled or, or, or affordable at the time. And both my grandmothers in retirement were living in pension accommodation. Now, I can tell you that if I thought my first home was a bit of a shitbox, mm. um, this pro- these properties my grandparents were living in, grandmothers, was, uh, you know, some steps down because they were very small mm. um, kind of um, what you call it units. Yeah. You know, I think you know, there were no amenities like washing machines. One of my grandmothers used to use the old copper. Oh, God. You know, they were, people wouldn't probably know what a copper is, but it's effectively you did your washing in this uh, copper, um, what you call it, pot, pot a, yeah. a big pot. And on the fire? Yeah, there'd be some sort of heating arrangement. Yeah. But one of these it's about crazy. the expectations at the time, and both my grandmothers would have been quite happy yeah. with that accommodation. People these days would say that's not even third world, yeah. it's fourth or fifth world. But what we lack now is affordable social housing for people like the client you're talking about 
to be able to go in and pay a you know a rent that allows them to have some money over and above that yeah that to live on from their sacrifice lifestyle would you like you talked about jumping in together with someone like in terms of like buying a house with someone i did that that's you did I, that yeah that's the only Any way pointers? i could afford to buy my first home my buddy and i um basically saved a little had a little bit of money saving uh we ended up having to go and borrow from a dodgy lawyer at the time because the banks wouldn't lend you money the insurance companies wouldn't lend you money but this lawyer managed to find some money. It wasn't cheap. Mm. I think it was about something like 13% interest at the time. Um, it got us both into the house. And so we were like, we had our feet on the property ladder. You have a written agreement or how do you make sure things don't well, go wrong? We didn't have a written agreement. Probably should have. Uh, we put equal amounts in there. We contribute equally. Then my buddy decided that he would go and tour the world. And um, which left me in a bit of a hole because I had to fund the whole lot. Mm. I think I had three jobs as I was trying to, you know, my normal job and a couple of part-time jobs. Did you pay them out or how did you? Yeah, eventually I paid them out, eventually. his equity, out of the property and um, off I went. But it, it put me under a little bit of pressure. Um, my late wife and I lived in that property. We had a flatmate for a while. I was in the police in those days and... Um, and, and that creates a few issues when you've got other people living in a house sharing it. I know you're doing that. I don't know if I could do it anymore. Um, it came to a head when I came home one day and uh, my late wife had made this wonderful pie. I remember it was a cherry pie. Mm. And I thought, oh, I thought I might have a bit of that and uh, went to the refrigerator. It was all gone. My flatmate at the time was a bit hungry, saw the cherry pie and presumed it was his, so he ate it. Ah, and that was it. Yeah, Don't it, come it was, between it, Greg and food. No, no, he was quickly shown the door. Oh, jeez. So it was only the two of us having to, to fund it, and then it wasn't, wasn't that easy, you know. So, but those are the sort of accommodations we had to make uh, to get ourselves into our first home. That's what people are still doing today. There's no difference. The difference mainly is that the value of homes are greatly increased. So even that Shitbox today would be probably worth, it would probably cost, if it was available in the condition it was at the time, it would be four to six hundred thousand dollars if it was available. Um, So that's not insignificant, but what is available now is that you could borrow the money to get it, providing you had the income. Mm. So back in the day, I had the income. But the funds weren't available, available through the normal lending requirement, you know, arrangements like the banks. What made it harder? And, and interest rates, um, well, if you can borrow now at three, were over four times what you'd have to pay now. Is it was it the higher lending requirements um, back no. then? What made it harder for you to get it? Or? No, there's just no money available. All oh, right, there wasn't a criteria; it just wasn't available. Ah, you know. So the banks weren't lending money then. Mm. I can remember, again, back in the day when I was working at the university, I think I had a $15,000 first mortgage to the BNZ. And for some reason, it was for a period of five years. Now, I can't remember why, but I can certainly remember the bank suggesting that I had to refinance or repay the loan. 
And I'm going, how was I going to do that? Yeah. I'm leaning, you know, why would the bank want me to do that? I was banking with the BNZ. I was working at the university as a lecturer at the time. And it was just through the generosity and goodwill of the manager at the bank, the BNZ at the time, good guy, that actually allowed me to renew or turn over the existing loan. Mm. I never forgot that. Uh, as soon as I actually had any coin, I quickly moved away from the BNZ. Uh, uh, funny enough, I'm back there with yeah, them now. So, but and the cha- and that's why because attitudes have changed uh, in some respect. The banks are a lot more helpful today than they were back in that day. Yeah, and I'm talking about the eighties, you know, mid eighties. Uh, it it was really really difficult. Uh, banks are fantastic these days. They will fall over themselves to lend you money. The problem that gets in the way is all the government regulation and red tape and bits and pieces. But money is available now. Uh. Interest rates are much more reasonable now. What's changed, though, is the value of properties has gone up. But the other one is expectations of the of the purchases have gone up. So... The children of today looking to buy their first home have much higher expectations than their parents had at the same time of life. Yeah. It's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. You mm. know? So it just costs more money and you've just got to suck it up and get on with it, not moan about how things are really tough today. Mm. They've always been tough and they're probably tougher in the day. When I was buying my first home, because there were lots and lots of roadblocks. Yeah, where would you get money from normally if the well, bank didn't have Well, other than the a... dodgy lawyer? Yeah, other well, than I the trust know. account. You had to get your parents to lend you money. Uh, you might so get really lucky that the insurance company or the bank might front up. It wasn't easy. So the bank just had no more money and they just couldn't issue more debt? Well, they chose not to. Yeah. Uh. At That's, the time, I'm so I don't confused. know, so it wasn't privy to the reasons. <laughs> I just saw the word N-O. No. Yeah. I remember, I think I got rejected three times by the ASB, and I'd banked with them all my life. Yeah. And I go, just, that's the way it was. Was it your income was low relative no. to what they had? You... I was a chartered accountant. I was earning a reasonable income. Yeah. Um, a good savings record. Stick it to them, man. Yeah. Do you think it could ever go back to a place like that? Or there's been a regulatory pressure for them to oh, be nicer? Or? It was just that we lived in those days in a very controlled economy. Okay. You know, this is before the Roger Douglas, um, Rogernomics, which opened New Zealand to the world. You yeah. couldn't buy a car back then unless you had a new car, unless you had overseas funds. How did you get overseas funds if you were just a, a normal working person in Dodgy New You couldn't. And so it became a bit of a closed shop. So the world's different. I never thought I'd ever be able to buy a new car. <laughs> it's, just, it's just unaffordable. But you can now. So you'd have to create an overseas account, chuck some pounds in it or something. And well, you'd you probably buy. have to travel overseas, work overseas, save some money overseas <laughs> to be able to you know, have some overseas funds to give to the car dealer so that you got up the list to wow. get a new car. Now well, it's the opposite. You don't. They won't even touch you if you have overseas funds. Well, now you've money got to explain where, where you got these overseas funds from. They come to the, you know, come to the attention of the, um, of the 
Um, yeah, of, of the people in power, they were what, the some, authorities. Was there something else that was odd? Then we don't really reminisce. Uh, it's quite interesting to me. Is there another strange thing where you couldn't buy a toothbrush unless you could juggle, or like what? No, 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 no. <laughs> well, the, I did work for a company that you couldn't get a pad unless you brought back the bit of cardboard to show that the pad was in it. You'd, you'd, you'd finished the the, the lined refill. Well. <laughs> So, so a bit different, eh? Yeah. So yeah. Right, we'll see you in 30 years. I'll be talking to the young buck about the same idea. Oh, that doesn't happen in this office, does it? Yeah. No, yeah. not yet. All right. Yeah. Well, that was useful. I enjoyed that. And I um, suspect the, new, the listeners enjoyed that. And TikTok was in and out. And we've just got two people coming in. Hello. Um, if you have questions, um, we're going to go live again in five minutes. And so had those questions ready. And thank you to nzaudioeditors.com for making us sound crispy. And Greg's got a, a book in the in in the making. Oh, it's all up here at the moment. Yeah, we're going to start getting that uh, audio version of that so you get to see what um, Jordan can do. of a financial planner. Yeah, wow, they might steal the title, mate. I don't know. Yeah, it's too late. But, all right, cool, thanks. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, My Sean. pleasure.